Welcome, beloved listener, to Medicine and Psychedelics, a podcast where we discuss science, spirituality, and psychedelic medicine as healing modalities. In this space, we'll hear from experts in the field, share personal stories, and put words to the profundity of this work. I'm Dr. Lita Fatemi, and I'm buzzing with gratitude to open this container. Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to another uh, amazing episode of uh, Medicine and Psychedelics. I'm here today with uh, my amazing co-creator, Elle Knowlton, and Dr. Brandon Warwick, who I had the pleasure of learning from in residency. I was a third-year resident at University of New Mexico uh, as an internal medicine uh, resident, and he was the uh, attending for our toxicology rotation, which I found fascinating. And I think, uh, Dr. Warwick, you were in newer attending um, at that time when you joined us at UNM. I don't know how many years you were practicing already. Uh, yes. So I was new faculty with UNM, but I had been in private practice and had worked up to a leadership role and was considered a partner in a large multi-state group before moving to UNM to pursue academia and a beautiful place to live. I'd say the year the year that we met, but that would just age ourselves. And we don't need to do that. No, we don't need to point. do that. <laughs> what yeah. did you do in private practice? Emergency medicine. That was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, you know, tell us about your journey of, um, yeah, that'd be great to hear. So I grew up in small town, South Dakota, and um, I wasn't, I'm the first person to go into medicine for my family. And I wasn't sure if it was for me. And I knew medical school was a long, long route. Um, I had an opportunity to go to nursing school straight out of high school. And I did that. And the nice thing with nursing is, is it, uh, is it exposed me to medicine? While I was going to nursing school, I also worked as a, C, as a CNA or certified nurse assistant at a nursing home. And so I, I had clinical experience immediately out of high school. Um, I really enjoyed the meta, the medical aspects of it, the caring for people. And I switched routes and I knew going into medical school was right for me. And when I went through undergraduate, I think had I not done nursing, I don't think I would have been nearly as focused and worked as hard as what I did to to achieve the grades and to achieve success. Um, I also took a year off. Again, my my family we didn't we didn't have a lot of money growing up, um, but I had a great and wonderful family that I would never change again. And so I took a year off to work as a nurse before going into medical school. And in that time, I expanded my outreaches. I learned to skydive, learned to scuba dive. I um, did a lot of biking. I was in the best physical shape of my life. Um, and I really enjoyed that time. So I went went through medical school um, and then did my in South Dakota and did my residency inner city Detroit at Detroit receiving an emergency medicine. I thought I would really enjoy the trauma 
um, and and trauma is going to have multiple meanings, I think, in this conversation. But I'm talking about the penetrating, the blunt trauma from accidents, from shootings, stabbings. Um, but I was I rapidly got bored with that, and and I just didn't think from an emergency standpoint there was much of a ch- of an intellectual challenge with it. Um, I I found and I finished that, and I knew I then worked in private practice. Um, with that all, and one of the private groups also had a ER residency that I w- was able to do some teaching with as well. Um, after about a year, I remembered what I had done the first time: take a year off before doing fellowship. Um, and so m- this time it was about um, it was just over a year and a half, and then I went back. And th- at that point, going through fellowship, I was financially in a much better place. Um, again. Um, for the listeners who might not know, um, residency they have they've had to pass laws and rule changes to limit how many many hours residents can work, and their salary currently is less than most nurses um, and 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 most other people with a bachelor's degree or more in a in a, in a hospital setting, um, and that's annual pay. Never mind when you dilute things down for total pay. Um, and so we were financially in, in a much better place. And I, it again, it gave me a moment of clarity and focus going through it. Um, and so I completed my fellowship in med talks. And then uh, life circumstances were uh, my son was born and uh, the, the group that I worked with um, allowed me to transition into a leadership role, which allowed me to which was a high priority for me to be able to be dad and to focus on some of that. Um, and then um, after a couple of years in that, while I was very appreciative of what I had learned and and, and, and where I was going, um, my calling is academics. And I had an opportunity um, to move to the University of New Mexico, which ironically was was one of my top choices all along. Um, I secretly and I didn't tell people. So um, now I'm here. And that's where I, I met uh, Dr. Fatimi. Um, both of us have continued to work, um, continued to grow our practices. And uh, and over that time, drugs of abuse um, have always been an area of focus of mine. Going back to fellowship, here's where the ages come out. Um, but um, I had my early successes were with the bath salts. Um, back in the 2010s and uh, the designer drugs. Um, and I had several very high level pub- or highly high level publications and very well received in, in journals. Um, and I had several invites to continue reading that. But when I got to New Mexico, the problem here very clearly was alcohol and opioids. And we didn't have the lab testing capability to to really be at, for me to be at the forefront of designer drug research, and I really turned my em- emphasis in understanding alcohol, understanding um, the intricacies of opioid use disorder, um, long term, in that I can make a difference for my state. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to grandfather into addiction medicine, so that would be my third specialty. But along the way, um, I've had some huge successes. Um, so when fentanyl started hitting the scene in 2016, 2017, 
um, there was a lot of hysteria, or I I call it hysteria, around just the casual exposure of people to to fentanyl. And so I had written a position statement with my two colleges at the national level, and um, five year five plus years later, that continues to be um, one of the most downloaded articles of two major journals. Um, which is something I, I never need that. I need that article, by the way. I have not seen it, Brandon. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Yes, please. And, and then it, it set off a constellation of things. Um, so I got to work with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and, and help set up a lot of their guidelines and protocols for how they handle this safely. Um, this also has led to uh, helping law enforcement here locally, too, and handling it. Um, and then the following year, um, we wrote a position statement. And um, because, again, New Mexico is unfortunately a leader in addiction or in opioid fatalities, whether or not you want to be involved with it, you will see it in your practice. So um, we pulled in, we wrote a position statement advocating for buprenorphine and other medications to be initiated in, in the acute care setting. It was specifically emergency department. And when I reflect back, I wish we would have been more inclusive and said in the acute care setting, uh, because I everything that we say and do in there is completely act is equally applicable um, to inpatient uh, internal medicine, family practice, as well as OBGYN um, and, and trauma and the, in trauma. Yeah. And, and again, this is the physical trauma, um, yes. not the mental trauma that we'll talk about too. And so that was again, very well received. I received award from my college um, and nationally, um, for both of those projects. And now I've got an opportunity and I've been working the last two years to expand um, treatment in the emergency departments across the state of New Mexico, really focusing on rural areas um, and with the New Mexico Bridge Program. And then most recently, I was asked to join an ECHO project sponsored by CDC to, to help communities suddenly lose a problem prescriber out of one way or the other, and for those communities to ad adapt to it. So I feel very uh, blessed that people, and I, I don't know how it happens, um, that uh, people like my opinion in 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 the addiction world, in the med talks world, on, on how I'm able to put some things together. And I've had some amazing opportunities that I would never have imagined for my life. It's awesome. I mean, you are aligned with what you do. And I think it comes through very um, vividly and very clearly that this is what you truly care about and you're passionate about and you care about people and getting them through whatever they need help with and truly to the, you know, to um, the motto of becoming a physician, I want to help people, right, and decrease suffering um, because, you know, the word patient comes from suffering, um, which I recently found that as I'm writing my book <laughs> on, um, on, you know, some topics we'll talk about later, but, um, for us to become physicians, um, we really are here to decrease suffering for our patients and in our communities. And 
you've been doing that for a long time, which is incredible at a population level. Um, and, you know, for me, it's been the same kind of journey where I see my work as a hospitalist in the inpatient setting at times, okay, it's it gets boring because I'm running the same protocols for sepsis and for protocols, right? And there is not a lot of art in it where I got to figure out, hey, where did the trauma, capital T or little t, trauma occurred in this patient's life? And they are very much dependent on opioids to uh, dissociate themselves or to numb themselves out from these past traumas that they've endured and have not been able to resolve with guidance, with psychotherapy, with different treatment modalities. So that's kind of, you know, and I'm getting grandmothered into uh, addiction medicine too <laughs> with Brandon's help, uh, but that's that's going to be after the symposium. Um, so Brandon, would you, thank you so much for that uh, sharing of your journey. That's incredible. And the work that you do is so appreciated and you see it, you get the love for it too. <laughs> um, let's talk about trauma. Let's talk about the association that we see or correlation, however you want to call it. But there's definitely um, a lot of studies that we see with especially childhood trauma that translates into PTSD, translates into addiction. Um, Thank you for that. And I, I think this is one area that the general public really misunderstands. And I think it's uh, really scary. Um, so when I teach, I like to use the the example of some of a veteran. You know, this is somebody who is putting their life at danger in response to 9-11 or for their love for the country and, and the defense of it. While in Iraq, Afghanistan, they had suffered an IED explosion and had a traumatic amputation of a limb. Um, I, there isn't anybody who's going to say that that physical trauma isn't an extremely painful event to lose an arm or a leg. And but at the same time, there and they they had a, a huge part of emotional trauma that comes with it. Um, the thought of I've always had a leg, I've always been able to run, I'm always able to do do this. My life, my identity is different. Now, you throw into a, a major spinal cord injury, I'm never going to be able to walk again. I'm never going to be able to have sex with my wife again. Um, those those things, again, really hit people hard. Additionally, you put in there that somebody that they have, they lost a friend or a buddy. Um, in the war, in the same IED explosion, and then becomes the guilt and the thought of, I, I just didn't feel something right. I know we were taking it slow, and it took us two miles or, or two hours to cover this one mile. But that's, and I and I saw something, and I, I just wanted to get home, and I rushed this, and I shouldn't have. And it's my fault. And so just as the morphine is helping with the pain from the traumatic amputation, the morphine's also helping with that physical pain. And as time goes on, a month later, they're they're having some real healing from the physical pain, but 
oftentimes in a trauma hospital and the university of new mexico is my third trauma one hospital that i've been credentialed at and worked at um and i have multiple level two trauma centers um and what i can say is that we're we're good at we're very good at handling the physical trauma but oftentimes beginning the discussion about what do we do with the mental trauma isn't there and then what's particularly scary is that um, then all of a sudden people, they all of a sudden find that if they stop using um, the substance, is that their pain, that the opioid, that their pain is worse, or if it's a benzodiazepine, that their anxiety is worse. And, the, and, they, and then they feel miserable because they're starting to have withdrawal symptoms. And so then over, oh, and this evolves over time, Basically, they're tr trying to use the substance just to get out of bed in the morning. I again, the analogy that I have, um, and and with our talk service is invariably I've got a a resident physician where you know again they work the long hours, who needs coffee just to survive. As Dr. Fatimi will tell you, is we don't run a hard service on the talk service and they're still drinking coffee just because that's their, that's how they get up and they function. So then when, when the opioid or the benzo becomes hard to find, then they start uh, turning to the streets and it, it consumes them. And before they know it, they've met the DSM five or the current diagnosis of a substance use disorder and admitting, and and they never once tried to get high or you um, something, and to admit to oneself in 2022 that I've got a drug problem, I'm addicted to opioids. That's really hard for a lot of people uh, to come to because I never tried to get high, um, and but it was there to try to cope. Unfortunately, right now, we're seeing the same thing play out with intimate partner violence. Um, I'm even seeing it in the schools following like a bad breakup. I know it's high school and ha having a few years behind me, um, the bad breakup takes on a whole new meeting. But it's all relative to what you go through. And with the with the price of counterfeit fentanyl today, um, it's never been easy and the access has never been easier. Um, that that this becomes a bit of a Trojan horse to introduce uh, a, a drug and ultimately go on to develop a substance use disorder. Absolutely. And it's really scary. It's, it really is. And, you know, the first place, the first step is to become conscious of it. And I think, you know, that's one of the, uh, one of our mottos to bring education to the community to hear this. Um, it's very important. And then and then once you recognize it as, oh, this is a problem, there are solutions as well. It is not all doom and gloom. There's definitely ways we can get through trauma um, and um, addictions um, and PTSD and treatment-resistant depression and things like that to live a life that you want to live. Um, you mentioned the ease of uh finding fentanyl can you tell us a little, little bit about that like what happened why are we here 
So I, I think the opioid epidemic has evolved over 20 some years. And I th- the I think the, the fentanyl epidemic has really taken advantage of a few of several factors that the cartels were running up against. One is the rational human being doesn't just seek out heroin from the shady guy on the street on the corner. And in whatever city you're living in, I think you know which street I'm talking about. Um, but it's more of it more of an insidious introduction from a friend, a family member. Here, try this. Um, and you're seeing the use and you're having some exposure. But for a lot of people who don't have that exposure, you know, making the jump is is not something that they're going to do unless they're desperate. So having something that looks more like a medicine, and it, and and in the case of fentanyl, it is a medicine. Um, I I've I have no idea how many patients that I've given fentanyl to. When I work in the ER, it's it's one of my go to drugs, and I use it on a daily basis. And I think. Um, Lita will tell you, we don't use it quite as often on the inpatient service just because it doesn't last real long, Uh, but it's very commonly used. And so you have have this trust or or this ability. The other problem with heroin is that you need, it's agriculture and you need to grow the poppy. It's very labor intensive to milk the poppy to obtain to do that, and then you need to do a chemical reaction uh, to make to, to the reactions to diacetylate it uh, from morphine to heroin, and then ultimately sell it. So her- fentanyl can be made in a lab. It's a depending on which precursor you have. It's a three step chemical reaction. Um, we'll add a few steps on there um, to increase the purity of the outcome. But what that allows is when DEA and the Mexican government comes in and they destroy my crop for the season. So what? We just move all of our equipment and our and we've got a new lab. We're up and running um, within a week in a new location. And I'm able to respond much more rapidly to changing shifts in supply demand. Also, the cost of um obtaining fentanyl um has historically been um three to four thousand dollars per kilo um which when you divide that up is there's much greater profit margin than with heroin so you get this ease of production you are the cartels already have the production facilities that for for more than a decade for manufacturing methamphetamine that they're able to then make um with fentanyl Things that I've learned as a physician from the fentanyl epidemic is that um, because of the short dosing interval um, that I take advantage of in the emergency department that our anesthesiologists take advantage of for elective surgeries, um, such as like a colonoscopy or short surgeries um, for things like that, is that then people are, are requesting or wanting to redose more and find themselves much more rapidly escalating up higher on a dose than what we were seeing with uh, heroin. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I talk to my patients who I admit inpatient for overdoses or uh, severe intoxication where, you know, they're almost dead. And, you know, they either come through the MICU to me or ICU to me or, 
um, through the ED and I've sat with them and I've talked with them. I'm like, so what's the difference? You know, like what is the experiential difference between the two? And they tell me how, you know, with heroin, the very first dose that you use is what you chase. You're chasing the dragon. And it's so difficult to catch up to it. You, you would never do, really. Um, and that's what a lot of the overdoses from heroin happen. Now, with fentanyl is when you have smoked the third or fourth dose then it actually, you feel the effect. So initially they don't feel anything. And as they, you know, increase the dose, increase the frequency, then it catches up with them and they're like, whoa, and then you're gone. And a lot of times they, you know, they tell me about their own stories of resuscitating people on the streets because they've overdosed with fentanyl. I mean, it's, you know, it is, it's a real big issue right now. Um, and with the pandemic, we've seen a lot more of it than ever before. Um, we, you know, it's just interesting to look at the human condition um, in isolation, uh, where it is so unnatural for us to be isolated, right? We're herd animals. And all of a sudden you have isolation, you have um, these significant global stressors, right? Financially, um, just being stressed out. And people who had some anxiety now have full-on panic attacks and they don't even know where it's coming from or how to deal with it. And But they know that the heroin or the fentanyl is going to take it away. Um, and, you know, Brandon, do you see a correlation between these issues with the homelessness that we're seeing, the increase in the number of I don't know if you have any insight with that, but I, 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 I want to go back and pick up one thing, and this yeah. is subtle. And so you're talking about you're talking to patients, but what you're conveying is that, um, and I, and you're an extroverted person, um, and I know that, but you were just listening to your patients and how much your patients will share with you and how much they teach you, especially in this realm, and I think that's I. I would like to think that's one of the reasons why I've been really successful in the in the business is just I've taken the time to listen to the patients because um, they don't let obviously Lita and I didn't get into medical school. Um, you know we didn't have a criminal conviction for a drug related offense otherwise we wouldn't have gotten in right any offense i mean it's like you know the amount of screening we go through like every year even you know we're very scrutinized yeah, yeah population and, for sure and so with that you know we're we're biasing our population of treating clinicians on on, on how we're treating substance use disorder and you go up to the to the high levels of setting who are designing the clinical trials that are going to define where we go again you know these are typically physicians or um therapists with phd levels who have excelled dr tremendously and are are some of the best of the best and again they're not having lived experiences so when we as clinicians can sit back and and i think academics set you up for this a little bit better than private practice but when we can take that, you know, and it's, it's two, three minutes at a time here and there um, to to listen to our patients, 
Um, they te- they teach me way more than what I've ever learned from uh, what I learned from the books on a regular thing. And then when I go to a meeting or something, and so I sit on the gov, and I have for I think five six years now, um, and a governor's advisory panel here or with law enforcement is like um, my my patients who haven't completed high school, who have lived experiences, who've got gotten into recovery and maintained that really grateful they're not getting invited to these meetings so i'm i get to provide a voice for them because i've taken a time to listen and and let me and an example for me that was kind of an aha moment was our approach of and going back to reversing somebody with naloxone when we do that in the emergency department, they wake up under the bright lights of the trauma bay, um, called trauma bay for physical trauma, not emotional trauma. And we've got a group of doctors and nurses that are like, hey, congratulations, welcome back from the dead. When, you know, and the and we're, I know, Elle, it's, Elle thinking about what's going to happen. And, and this, that's exactly where I'm going to go Thank next. Is, so what's the, so we know what that experience is, and we're all like high fiving ourselves. But what was the last thing that that patient remembered? Mm-hmm. Is they remember that they were in their sweet spot, they were feeling good, because everybody in that room, even their friend who drove them to the emergency department, who knew they were near death or on death's doorstep, um, the patient never felt, never experienced that near death experience. And what what I'm going to share something kind of personal about me, but I've woken up in my own bed scared because I didn't know where I was in my own bedroom. And and I've done it in hotel rooms and things. So if I wake up under these bright lights and people welcome back from the dead, I'm already terrified. And then you and then you throw in there that I'm now starting to withdraw and I feel absolutely miserable. That's a that's an unpleasant experience. And so it becomes much more difficult as a provider for me to engage somebody into, into help, into therapy. Absolutely. Um, we create traumas in our health system. We do. We do. And even with our psych patients, like it is not okay for them to be in this enclosed environment, no windows, no sunlight, no nothing. It's like it's with a sitter and you can't really talk. You can't really do anything. We need a complete revision, to be honest with you, with how we approach mental health and how we take care of these patients and really looking at the source. Because, you know, what I see, which really bothers me actually in my medical practice right now, is I feel the traumas that we induce in our patients in our setting. Because set and setting, we know, is absolutely huge. So even if I was going to do ketamine treatment in the hospital setting, I wouldn't want to for the patient's sake, right? Because being in a much more natural environment, let's say if it was outdoors, let's say, let's like in the dream world, say we had, um, you know, for our rehab facilities, we had cabins in the woods, for our addicts to be able to, you know, do their talk therapy in nature, sitting by a stream, 
um, and do nature therapy and talk therapy and psychotherapy and maybe even, you know, using some of the psychedelic medicines like ketamine or MDMA or psilocybin in a natural environment. Our outcomes would be completely different. The journey of the individual would be completely different. We would not create trauma after trauma after trauma for that patient who's already traumatized. They're trying to get over their childhood trauma or adulthood trauma, and we are inducing more in our systems. Um, so yeah, that, that's a dream of mine at some point. We'll see. Yeah, it's a dream of mine to be be able to work in the woods every day too. And Wouldn't that be awesome? Up. Hey, maybe we can do that someday. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think there, um, in New Mexico is a wonderful place to do that. Um, and for the listeners, I don't know quite where you are, but up in the mountains up north, um, we, we sit at a latitude that most people think that we're hot like Phoenix, but we're cooler than Oklahoma City and um, Dallas. We're, we're cooler than Houston. Yeah. And we don't have the humidity or the bugs that carry us away. And when just further north is, is Los Alamos, uh, which has the highest PhD per capita. And it's hard to find a house with an air conditioner up there uh, just because of the the cool mountain air at night cools things off. Um, but year-round outdoor activities are up there. I, I would love that. But I think the other challenge then becomes how, how do we start adapting people back into mm-hmm. uh, out of the inpatient and this... I don't know. This is this is Lita and I, our version of unicorns and rainbow um, place, but back into their real world. Did you see this, Brandon? I'm, my <laughs> water. <laughs> this is my glass with a unicorn on it as I'm drinking my water. <laughs> and and because we also know that environment is huge. Huge. So the so going back to the the service so the most successful drug treatment program ever documented in world history was run by the united states army and i didn't know that yeah so huh. here, here here's how it worked is uh evidently vietnam was not a it was a trauma inducing environment both physically and mentally and as we talked about part of the coping thing is um was fair amount of u.s service personnel were using heroin and uh marijuana other substances uh, recreationally and the u.s army was doing um drug testing for that um lee robbins is the person i want to give the most credit to and she built her entire academic career on this um and and her work is compendulum and she's i would love to meet her someday she's on my i I need to meet list in the addiction world um and and so she described this and basically we pulled the people back into the states and so the government was like we can't have all these people using heroin returning from Vietnam. And remember, this is a time in the 1960s, 1970s when Vietnam War was, the counterculture was there. Um the Richard Nixon in 1970-1971 uh started the DEA, declared war on drugs. Um and and so putting this into perspective on what what we've got going on domestically. And when we 
in in Robin's work, when we followed the service personnel back here in, in into their real, and they got integrated, their rates of reuse with heroin um, was actually was at the same level as the general population. There's no other in, intervention that was needed, and 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 arguably less than what we would have predicted um, for them. And again, it was just a change in the environment. So, what did they do exactly? They just brought people back from Vietnam back to the U.S. And that was it. That was it. And the, and that did they that have is, psychotherapy? Did they have like no, no. literal no, then, just environmental change? And and yeah, and wow. and highlighting that just the environmental change. Yes. So you know, wow. and some of this is going to be at, at rate limiting steps of our what our insurance pays for, and so when I'm in the addiction clinic. Um, I'm, I hold the psych residents to the highest standard when they rotate with me, but like I try to really push on them when they forget or they don't ask who they live with and who else in the yes, home. Yes. Because if I'm sending a person to go back into a home where they're still drinking or still have it, their likelihood of success is so much lower. Absolutely. Again, recognizing the importance of environment. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So, you, you know, um, it becomes difficult for a health system to fund uh, somebody to relocate them from. Um, I, and I, I'm just using a friend of mine that I've worked with with DOH, who's had a lot of success with AA and NA and had a high leadership position in Texas and then moved out here. Um, for a period of time just for a change of environment and is moving back. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's going to do great things. I have mm-hmm. absolutely no doubt. Mm-hmm. But again, recognizing that change of environment, she had the means to do that and the ability. Yeah. yeah. And But not everybody does. Not everybody does. And that's, you know, um, with some of my patients that I've talked to about, you know, their addictions and, you know, that's one of the things that I have a really hard time with. Um, when in the inpatient setting, we sit and talk and we have breakthroughs and they're super excited. They're like, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to talk about my experience and teach other people about it. And then two days later, it sinks in that, oh, I'm going to go back on the streets. I'm going to be with the same people. I'm going to be in the same environment. So what, what am I to do? Um, and that's heartbreaking, you know, as a physician who's there to truly help um, and decrease suffering. It's like, oh man, like talk about the human condition, right? And you see this roller coaster of their psyche just playing out. And it's very difficult to practice medicine in that setting. You know, that helplessness as a physician that I feel, or as a healthcare professional, a lot of us feel, um, is very difficult because we don't have those systems in place that can catch them um, when they get out or, you know, when they're out on their own, like, what do we do? And it's a huge complex issue, of course, you know, Um something worth thinking about and we have a lot of creative people listening so i think that would it's a it's a it's a societal problem everywhere it is not here it's it's the human condition you know um and we know globally use of different substances has increased just because of you know the numbing factor that people try to create this fuzz between themselves and their reality 
Thank you for that. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, just the I've had a you know the and the the fuzz you bring up, and it just makes me think of drinking. I mean, we've all had that bad day at work of work, and you come home and you have a drink or three just to kind of be able to face your family and not and be able to just forget some of that. And when that becomes more of a regular thing, again, you that that's not everybody, but for a lot of people, that's how this begins. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then dealing with the underlying, and there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of PTSD that come with this um, too. And, and I think, you know, you and I have, have, have really kind of spoken to this and we see it. Um, somebody who comes in has a traumatic and, and will take a cop who I don't want to be a police officer and seeing the stuff that, or the people that they bring in um, to the hospital. And, and I, and I'm speaking my terminology of bring in a, a little bit on purpose because um Nobody, that's a bad situation. And and it's a bad situation, whatever. And then the person is 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 a condition that they're having to be brought in by a police officer as opposed to a paramedic, as opposed to themselves. Let's just say there's something bad going on. And then the cop is having to see this. And 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 the cop also, like two calls the police because you're having a good time. I mean, the closest that I've ever had <laughs> is, is like, is, so living in New Mexico, when we go camping, it's always, um, I, we have a lot of BLM land and we go, and it's always nice to have a, a, a campfire because um, of forest fire dangers. Um, you really can't have a campfire most of the year. So, but you can have one of those um, propane run gas things. Right. And so then they're having to come out and <laughs> tell me to, tell me to turn my fire off, but it's completely legal. And then it's like, and we're, we're having a couple of beers sitting out, having a drink. And, you know, you always invite them uh, to stay a little bit longer, tell a story or something, <laughs> but they're like, no, man, I got to go back to work. You know how that's even, that's like the best call they can respond to. Totally. They're treating them well, but then they've got to go back to work and deal with something else. Um, and so, you know, if, and, when you see a child, a young child um, die or whatever on the scene and, and you try to numb it, yeah. like really what, how do we help that officer develop the resiliency to overcome what they saw? Because a lot of their police officers, they're human beings like you and I, and they have children like us coming home. Mm -hmm. My worst case in medicine is I had a, I had a newborn death when mm -hmm. my son was, uh, three or four months old wow. um and that and and certainly you know when he's coming home and he's sound asleep you know like you're like, checking on him like every you know. five minutes yeah there's the rule don't wake the baby and it's like no the baby's getting a hug and we're gonna have some, <laughs> oh. some dad child time together this is why i eliminated every specialty with pediatrics in it i could not handle I couldn't even handle an asthma exacerbation in a kid. So I was like, okay, maybe peds is not my cup of tea. I had I had my my daughter and she was around one, I think, at the time. But no, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, and it and it adds. And then you start having a drink here or there and 
But again, it's it's how do we teach the resiliency? How do we help people overcome? How do we help people manage their grief? Mm-hmm. And whatever we've got going in in our in the United States, we're going in the wrong direction. Totally. I'm gonna age, I'm gonna age myself. You Please know, back do. When, <laughs> back when I was, was a was in school, it was these. It was we were watching too much TV. And then it was video games. We're watching too many violent video games. Now it's social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's good and there's bad with everything. But what happened to the violent video games? I, I'm not a, I don't consider myself a gamer, but I think I can pretty easily find a game where I go shoot Nazis or, or something. Totally. Um, and I don't know that. And TV, like we binge watch Netflix. Or and I, and I maybe I shouldn't do company names, but we we binge watch something. So good, yeah, yeah. Totally. We're trying to complete with Netflix for market share, um, and but those haven't gone away. But the rate that we're seeing of suicide deaths, overdose oh, deaths going up, it's monumental. When, yeah, and and when we look at why the U.S. has um, in compare our Healthcare to that of the rest of the world, we don't score well. A major factor is life expectancy. When we've got people in twenties, thirties, forties that are dying, um, that pulls it down. And life expectancy in the United States has been been declining and well recognized uh, for several years now, well before the pan for the pandemic, and. It's prime. What was triggering it is the overdose and suicide deaths, mm-hmm. and and so we can spend more on healthcare. And I'm not. And while I want to find a cure for cancer as much as every other American, um, re- our mental, for lack of mental health, is offsetting all of our gains in cancer research. I'm not picking on a heart disease because we haven't made the the gains in survival like we have with 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 cancer and the cancer gains um according to the federal government really are coming from lung cancer and it's changes made in the late 90s and with decreasing smoking again i'm bringing this back to addiction thank you so much listener for indulging in the first half of our interview with dr brandon warwick This is a beefy one, continues on for quite some time, so we've segmented it into two separate episodes. The next half will be dropping next week, and we begin discussing solutions to medical crises using psychedelics. We dive into the research, into the hope, and into how the world is evolving in this way. So we thank you for your ears on this episode, and we'll be back soon. See you next week. One!